Hi everyone, Nicole here with a quick update about Roadside Horror Show's release schedule. Normally, we release Roadside Horror Show once a week. But for the second half of our road trip, we're going to switch to an every other week schedule. This change will let Eden and me find the best and weirdest true crime and paranormal stories for the remainder of our journey. As always, we'd like to thank you for listening, and without further ado, on with the show. Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside Horror Show. I think my voice cracked a little bit on that intro, but that's cool. Uh, So we are in Iowa. Iowa. And I've been waiting for this state. I know. I think when we uh, first started the podcast, you were very excited about this story. Oh, yes. So many moons ago. Many, many. Well, I guess to kick things off, since we're in Iowa for the first time, I'll share some fun facts that I dug up about the wonderful state. Can't wait to hear them. So... I'm sensing a theme with Midwestern states. They're all, they all seem to be named for rivers, and as is Iowa. Mm-hmm. So it's named after the Iowa River, which in itself is named after the Iowa people who are the Native American habit- inhabitants of the region. And the funny thing is, is that the word Iowa is actually a French interpretation of the name that the Sioux Native Americans called this tribe, the Awa, which meant the sleepy ones. Interesting. So apparently they just were narcoleptic or something. I guess. So, you know. Cool. Cool. Iowa. Sleepy. Sleepy little state. (laughs) Iowa does have a ton of farmland, and I think that's what most people think about when they think of Iowa, right? Yeah. Apparently almost 92% of the state is considered farmland. Okay, that makes sense. Whenever I think of the Midwest in general, I think of a lot of like farmland. Yeah. A lot of corn, lots of stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Lots of rolling fields. Yes. I was also considered the safest state in the U.S. to live in. Really? Mm-hmm. I was thinking it'd be mm-hmm. Wyoming because there's no one freaking there. Well, apparently Iowa. Oh, okay. Iowa also tops the chart in literacy. The state literacy level is 99%, which means nearly everyone in the state can read. Good for you, Iowa. Right? Right? That's very impressive. Uh, perhaps you could even see the impact of all that reading in Iowa's history of civil rights. There's been some interesting instances of the state being ahead of the curve when it comes to adopting rights for women and minorities. I know a lot of people kind of think of Iowa as a more conservative state. That's what I would think. Yeah, but they, they have some pretty interesting uh, firsts, actually. Iowa granted married women the right to own property way back in 1851. Wow. And they allowed women to practice law as early as 1869. Lady lawyer. Mm-hmm. In fact, the first female lawyer in the U.S. was an Iowan named Arabella Mansfield. Wow. Okay. Iowa is also a legal trailblazer for school desegregation. Nice. The state Supreme Court ruled that separate but equal schools were unlawful all the way back in 1868. That was really ahead of the curve. Wow. Yeah, like 85 years before Brown v. Board of Education. Wow. Crazy, right? And, of course, the most recent first for Iowa, it became one of the first states to recognize same-sex marriage as legal in the U.S., the Iowa Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional to forbid same-sex marriage on April 3rd, 2009, and began issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples on April 27th, 2009. Awesome. Yeah. So, Iowa. Beautiful farmland, lots of readers, and, you know, a little bit ahead of the curve when it comes to social issues. Yeah, good for you, Iowa. I mean, now, like, I might just have to go to Iowa. I, I would give it a whirl. I'd visit. Check out Des Moines. That's what I have for fun facts. All righty. So we're just going to jump right into the story then? Yeah, I know you're excited to get there. I am. (laughs) 
Okay, guys, my story for this week is one that I've waited a long time for. Y'all might be able to guess because the setting is in the name of the story as well, but we're headed to Villisca, Iowa. Villisca is a small town with a total area of 1.90 square miles and a population of only 1,252. Super tiny. It's very small. There is no water in this town to speak of. It's all land, no water. Dry, landlocked state. Yep. (laughs) You can go to nearby Stanton, Iowa, uh, which is also in Montgomery County, though, and visit Viking Lake State Park if you want to be near some water. Viking Lake? Yeah. That sounds awesome. It sounds pretty cool. So I looked and looked and then looked some more for more things to do in this town, but there truly is nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, not one damn thing other than to go to the location that my true crime story, uh, which is open to tours since it seems to be the only thing this tiny town is known for the Velisca axe murders. So you can go to that house and see stuff. I understand why they call the Velisca axe murders then. Cause it's like, yeah, what happened there? Axe murders in Velisca. Cool. Yep. So before I get into all that, though, I do need to tell you that there was another notable crime in this town that I came across by accident on Wikipedia when researching this town. There was a man named Randy Weaver, whose dog and young son were shot in the back by police in August of 1995. Uh, They never identified themselves and also shot his wife, who, from what I could gather, was carrying a sawed-off shotgun. I don't know why she was, but... That's all I found. Um, The government avoided going to court over this by paying Randy $100,000 and giving his three living children $1 million each. Wow. Yeah. Uh, It sounded like a crazy story, but there was no way I was going to miss out on talking about my favorite unsolved crime. Not to the other crime in Villisca. Perhaps maybe on a refuel we can dig into that, but I'm excited for your, your main story. Oh, yeah. This is the story, uh, like, this story is the reason that I got into true crime and wanted to be an investigator. I saw something on TV about it decades ago, and it was just the most interesting, spine-chilling thing to me. And I forgot some of it, too, while I was researching, which made it, um, you know, even better. Because it's almost like it's brand new. So it all started on June 9th, 1912 in Villisca. There was this family called the Moore Family. There were the parents, Josiah and Sarah, who were 43 and 39, respectively. They had a total of four children together. They were Herman, who was 11, Mary, who was 10, Arthur, who was 7, and Paul, who was only 5. It all started as a totally normal day for this family. Mary was going to have a sleepover that night with her two friends, Ina May, who was 8, and Lena Gertrude Stillinger, who was 12. They all attended a church service that evening at the Presbyterian Church where they worshipped. Sarah actually had coordinated a Children's Day program, which is what they were attending at the time. Hmm. Sounds like a pleasant day. Yeah. It ended around 9.30, and they all arrived back at the home together at the Moore's house between 9.45 and 10 at night. Okay. Now, remember, I'm describing this house from a black and white photo, so who knows how accurate I'll be but here goes nothing. 
from what I could see of the house, it's a two-story home with white siding and a covered porch. There are a few windows on the outside of the house which add to its charm. And it looks like there was an addition on the right side of the home, probably due to the fact that they seem to just keep having children. A growing family needs a growing house. Exactly. Also, since this was 1912, a lot of people didn't have indoor plumbing and there was an outhouse out back. That makes sense. Yeah. The street that the house is on is this nice, quiet-looking, tree-lined street, seemingly far away from any dangers more populated areas in Iowa might hold. Seemingly. Dun-dun-dun. Around 7 a.m. the following morning, a neighbor by the name of Mary Peckham became concerned as to the welfare of the family when she noticed that no one was up doing their chores. I don't know about you, Nicole, but uh, besides for work, there's no reason for me to get out of bed before 10 a.m. None whatsoever. I mean, I get out of bed before that because my cat bothers me until I feed him. Oh, well, that's true. Other than that. Mine's not on a food schedule. He just eats when he wants to. So. Oh, no. My cat's perfected the cry that sounds like a human baby cry. Oh, nice. He only uses it in the morning when he wants breakfast. Great. Well, Salem will chirp outside my my door (laughs) each morning. But yeah, things were different in 1912, I'm sure. So it was normal to get up at the butt crack of dawn and start doing your chores. Anyway, she was worried. So she tried knocking on the door. No one answered. So she tried to open the door, but it was locked. So she figured maybe they'd come out soon. So she actually did the neighborly thing and decided to get started on some of the chores for them and let the chickens out and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, At first, I was completely like, this nosy bitch can't mind her own damn business. (laughs) That's just being neighborly when you live in a small community, though. Yeah, but now I I really like her, and I think she's a great neighbor because she helped with chores. <laughs> I used to have oh, a neighbor who would uh, I used to have a neighbor who would mow my lawn for me. Oh like, yeah, it would be like a random Sunday, and I'd like, oh, I'll have some coffee, and then I'll get there and mow. And the next thing I know, as I'm like filling my cup with coffee, I hear a lawn mower, and I look out, and it's like my neighbor who's just like, oh, just mowing my lawn. Figured I'd mow yours too. Oh, nice, that's great. Yeah, I was I was very thankful. Absolutely. So remember, we've liked good neighbors before on this podcast since episode one. Mm-hmm. So still waiting on that sponsorship state farm. Get on it like one of your agents would if I told my Maserati. <laughs> so Mary started calling for, you know, the family, uh, figuring maybe they'd overslept, but still didn't get an answer. She then decided to call Josiah's brother, Ross Moore, for help. But he, too, had no luck getting in contact with the family. He did have a key to their house, however, and was able to unlock the front door and go inside. At this point, Mary waits outside while Ross goes into the house. After entering the guest bedroom, uh, he comes straight out again and tells Mary to call for Hank Horton, uh, who is the town's peace officer. Okay. I looked up the term, and it's an umbrella term, so I have no idea what his actual job title was. It could be anything from police officer to sheriff to freaking secret agent, for all we know. Gotcha. Uh, Regardless of his actual title, he was on the scene pretty quickly. I don't think anyone was prepared for what they found inside the house, though. Uh, Villisca is a quiet town, and this was the early 1900s, and things like this just didn't really happen. Mm -hmm. Inside, it was a bloodbath. Both Josiah and Sarah, all four of their children, and the two girls who were sleeping over were all found slaughtered in their beds, having each been bludgeoned to death with an axe. That's crazy. Uh, So that's eight dead. 
Lizzie who? Yeah. At this point? Like, yeah. They were able to see that the axe in question belonged to Josiah and was found in the guest bedroom along with the bodies of the Stillinger sisters. So it's safe to say that they were the last two to die. They looked around and the bodies were examined and a timeline of events was created. Uh, I don't believe anyone in the family smoked, yet two cigarette butts were found in the attic of the house where they believe the killer or possible killers had lain in wait for their victims to return home and get settled into a deep sleep. Wow. That was the part that really got me into this story when I was younger because mm-hmm. I heard about the two smoked cigarette butts in the attic and just the thought of someone just waiting in the attic for you to go to sleep and then slaughtering the entire family just was insane. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of uh, the Hinterkaifax murders in yeah. Germany where it, they someone was like clearly living in their attic for a while. Yeah. Creepy. Oh, and creepy. also that creepy story from Japan. Uh, where this one guy had an apartment and he noticed like his food would go missing and he thought he had like rats for a while. And it turned out that there was this woman who was living in his cupboard. What? Yeah. She was just living there, just chilling. That's wow. Yeah. I, mm, now I'm creeped out because sometimes in my office when the sunlight comes in, it smells like cigarettes. Oh no. And I think it's because the previous homeowners used to smoke up there. Probably. And I'm like, oh God, there's someone, there's someone in the house. <laughs> yeah. I'd be a little freaked out too. There are two other stories I've heard as well uh, where the killer either came in through the back door or from the chimney like an evil axe-wielding Santa. (laughs) It seems so difficult. It does. You would get stuck in a chimney, I'm pretty sure. Because they're not like straight down. They go... Yeah, and they narrow at certain junctures. Fun stuff. So they also say he used an oil lamp to light his way in the dark house and split the wick so it could be a little dimmer as well. (laughs) The assailant took the axe and started in the master bedroom murdering both Josiah and his wife. Josiah seemed to be the biggest target of this killer's rage since he received more blows than the others. His face had been so savagely torn apart that his eyes were missing. What? Yeah. Wow. And Damon was here when I was doing my notes. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure he heard me go, ugh, at one (laughs) part. And that was for that. Yeah, that was gross. Uh, The other victims didn't exactly get off easy, of course, but for some reason, Josiah was the only victim the killer used the blade of the axe on. Everyone else was bludgeoned with the butt of the weapon. Interesting. Yeah, weird choice. I don't know why. The really sick thing is that after killing the children, the killer or killers went back to deliver even more blows to the parents. There was something about a shoe. I just have look up the shoe thing written in my notes for this (laughs) uh, because I couldn't find anything on it. Wikipedia had something and I couldn't understand exactly what it was saying, but there was like a blood filled shoe that got knocked over something like that in the parents' bedroom. Yeah. Hmm. So something with a shoe guys. The fact that there was a shoe full of blood because of how badly exactly these people were beaten with an ax is a insane legend, I suppose. Is yeah. Word. So after this, the killer went into the guest bedroom and killed the two Stillinger sisters, probably killing Ina first because it's believed that Lena was the only victim to be awake during the time of her death. Oh. My best guess is he killed Ina and the noise woke Lena up and she tried to get away or fight back. The reason for believing that she was awake at the time of her death is because she was lying the wrong way on the bed. So like she was laying like widthwise rather than lengthwise. Right. So maybe she tried to get up and was struck down. Correct. Uh, and also um, her skirt or like nightgown, whatever it was, was pulled up. Mm. So possible rape as well. 
Uh, she also had defensive wounds on her arm. Um, another thing about that as well was that her underwear was also gone. Her underwear was missing. Gross. Yeah. So it's another reason they think that she may have been raped. I don't think they had like rape kits back then. So. Right. He also covered Josiah's face with a shirt and Sarah's with a dress. And then he covered the bodies with bed sheets. He also reportedly covered all the mirrors with cloth, which stems from a superstition a lot of you out there probably have heard of. Mm -hmm. Uh, When someone dies in a house, you're supposed to cover the mirrors with sheets or cloth so the spirits don't get trapped inside. Have you heard that one before, Nicole? I have. And that's actually like in certain cultures, that's part of the mourning traditions. Yeah. Yeah. So he did that. I mean, I'm assuming it's a guilt thing as well with the way he's covering the bodies. Yeah. And it's interesting that only the the non- family members were like presumably molested or yeah so it's very strange he also did a few other weird things like he took some uncooked bacon out of the freezer wrapped it up and placed it near one of the bedrooms and then he also took the house keys with him when he left what yeah i don't know why you would just be like here's some bacon guys sorry bye yeah weird they had told people not to go into the house Of course, course. but people are dicks and didn't listen. (laughs) Not only did they contaminate the crime scene because of this, but someone even went as far as to take a piece of Josiah's skull as a souvenir. What the fuck? Yeah. Like, how fucked up do you have to be? Yeah. That's like extreme, like, vultures like oh yeah we talked about other other crime scenes where people come and they take soil and rocks Mm -hmm. and limbs from trees and things like that but like pieces of the body like that's so ghoulish so the police went on to investigate the gruesome crime for a long time with no success and the case is still unsolved today uh there are however a ton of suspects for this yeah tell me about these suspects because i'm so curious they interviewed a bunch of people so i just have some of them um So they suspected a man named Andrew Sawyer, even though there wasn't any real evidence against him other than the fact that he was a transient who worked on the railroad who seemed to be obsessed with the murders. Like he would read the newspaper with it every day and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And people just had a bad opinion of people that worked for the railway for some reason. And I don't know why, but back then it was like kind of like a like a lower class job, I guess. I'm sure it's because of like the uh, like you, you're almost itinerant in a weird way because you're like traveling constantly. Yeah. And yeah, like this guy, he just I don't know where he came from, but he just suddenly asked for a job and started working there. And mm-hmm. Yeah. No one had heard of him before. So they don't really like that sort of thing, I guess. The drifter who just happens to have a job in their opinion. Yep, exactly. So he was one of the suspects. Uh, nothing ever really happened with him. I think that they, he might have been tried and then let go. Because they didn't have any evidence. Yeah, exactly. They thought that Sam Moyer, Josiah's brother-in-law, may have been the murderer for a while because he had made threats to murder Josiah before. But I think that's just family stuff. Sometimes <laughs> people get mad and say things they don't mean. Sure. We'll go with that. I mean, it's a little on the extreme end. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I've said I'm going to fucking kill you. And I've never killed anyone. So That's fair. That's fair. He had an alibi for the time of the murder anyway. So. How convenient. Exactly. We know how alibis sometimes do not hold up. Mm-hmm. They thought that maybe the murders were the work of a serial killer at one point, suspecting a Massachusetts man by the name of Paul Mueller. Um, 
They also suspected a guy named Henry Lee Moore, who he also may have been a serial killer. He was not related to the family, I should add. I was going to say, I'm like, what a coincidence. Yeah, it, not related at all. But he did kill his mother and grandmother with an axe, and it was similar to what happened to the Moore family. Hmm. There were a ton of other suspects as well, but my favorite theories have to be these next ones. Okay. Number two on my suspect list is an Iowa state senator and Villisca resident by the name of Frank F. Jones, who employed Josiah in his store before Josiah opened his own place, which stole business away from Frank. Frank obviously did not like that very much. Mm-hmm. There was also a rumor of an affair with Jones's daughter-in-law, but that's never been substantiated. Uh-oh. Most people who think Frank was the killer believe he hired a man by the name of William Mansfield, or Blackie, as he was more commonly known. This guy had previously also murdered his wife, baby, and in-laws with an axe. Wait, what? How is he, like, still around? I don't know. Creepy. Uh, if I had more time, I would have researched him more heavily. Yeah. But to make him an even better fit for this crime, he was suspected of murdering two women by the name of Jenny Peterson and Jenny Miller in Illinois just four days earlier. And the way that he killed them also fit with the pattern. So using an axe while they were sleeping kind of stuff? Yeah. Uh, he was acquitted after facing trial when the grand jury decided that his alibi checked out. Oh, my God. Uh, the number one suspect, however, has to be the traveling minister by the name of Reverend George Kelly. This is the guy that I thought it was from like the beginning, the mm-hmm. first time I heard it. He was in town when the murders happened. He had a slew of problems, including suffering a nervous breakdown as a child. He was seen as peculiar. That's in quotes because I don't know what peculiar necessarily means because yeah. I don't know the man. Uh, and he had been accused of being a pedophile by several people as well. Oh, wow. That, so mm. that fits with the possible rape or attempted rape. Yeah, that's quite the uh, minister there. Oh, yeah. Uh, he came to town to teach the Children's Day, uh, teach at the Children's Day that the family had attended. And he was in direct contact with them since Sarah was the one that set everything up. Hmm. Uh, some believe that the family may have even invited him to the house, had him stay there before. Yeah, like maybe come on back with us. You can stay here overnight. And... Exactly. So he was also gone the very next day by 5 or 5.30 a.m. So he did not stick around. He confessed to the murders in a court of law at one point, but the jury didn't believe him. Wait, he confessed and he they're confessed like, no, and they're like, nah, you're just weird. No, you're a minister. You can't be a bad guy. That's weird. Yeah, so he was also obsessed with the case and would constantly write letters to everyone involved in the case. A private investigator actually wrote him back and asked him for details about the murder, to which the reverend was able to give a lot of correct answers, but they still weren't sure if he was the one that did it. He then went into a mental institution after he was arrested again, but this time it was for harassing a woman who applied to be his secretary. (laughs) Uh, He was arrested for the murders again, I guess, from what it sounds like. Maybe double jeopardy didn't exist yet. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he confessed again, but later recanted. Okay. He was tried for a second time and yet again acquitted. In my opinion, he really seems to fit the bill more than any of the other suspects on the list. Yeah. Uh, The house where the murders took place is open for tours and overnight stays as it is reported to be haunted as well now. Really? Mm -hmm. What a surprise. 
They say that the sound of footsteps can be heard around the house. Objects move on their own. Disembodied voices can be heard. Shadows move about of their own free will. And people have also seen full-bodied apparitions at this place. So if you're looking to visit, it should satisfy you both in the true crime and paranormal departments. Yeah, really. So, Nicole, who do you think the killer was? It's tough. It's There seems to be a lot of evidence for, for the minister, Kelly. Oh, yeah. But the one thing that kind of makes me pause and question it is the rage that was used when killing Josiah. Yeah. Makes me wonder, like, was there some kind of altercation that triggered it or what happened? But then again, if there was an altercation, why would he invite this minister into his home? Exactly. And then also, if there was an altercation like that, if for him to be the prime target mm-hmm. of this killer, uh, that would also lean more toward, um, uh, what was his name? The, his business rival. The business rival guy yeah. or his brother-in-law. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's, yeah, I don't know. I think it's amazing, though, that even though you have somebody who's confessing to the crime. They're still acquitted. They're like, no, I don't think so. Yeah. It's kind of like in modern day when, like, there's a notable crime or notorious crime. There's always people who come out of the woodwork and try to confess to it. But when someone has details, it's sort of like, all right, well, how close are you following this news story? Yeah. And this in particular, since the house, like, really wasn't a crime scene that was protected. It, anybody could wander in there. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you could glean things. It from, was 1912. There wasn't yeah, a lot of... Exactly. Like police procedures still yep. in its infancy. So interesting. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. See, this is... Oh, it's such like a mind fuck. And it's just... It's so sad because we will never know now. Yeah. Yeah. And I really want to know because this one has always stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Always. My sources for this week, I didn't need many of them because most of them told the same damn thing over and over <laughs> again, uh, were Wikipedia, VilliscaIowa.com, SmithsonianMagazine.com, Des MoinesRegister.com, RoadTrippers.com, and TravelChannel.com. Well, thanks for that, Eden. I'm Absolutely. glad you finally got to tell the story of the Villisca Axe murder. Yeah, because seriously, if someone doesn't know that story, they need to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess we'll take a little break and then I'll be back with a, I would say lighthearted. Lighthearted? Okay. Paranormal story. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. After being bludgeoned with an axe, we need something lighthearted. Yeah, it's a pretty good counterpoint, I think. You know. But yeah. I guess you guys will be the judge of that. I guess they will and they will judge you hard, Nicole. They will judge you so hard. <laughs> All right, guys, we'll be back. And we're back. We're back. So, Nicole, I have a weird news story for you. Yes. I need my nude. This... I need my weird news. Whoa. <laughs> I need my weird news for the week. I don't know where you thought that was going, Nicole, <laughs> but you are a married woman. It's been a week, Eden. Um, so, you've heard of, like, the El Dorado fires. Like the wildfires? Yeah. Yeah. So, they're, you know, they're on, like, their 15th day, and they're still burning the covered like 22,000 acres yeah it's terrible it's really bad but Oregon has a unique solution okay found this headline that says Oregon hires goats to combat wildfires really I didn't know goats were good with fires I never knew that either but apparently goats make excellent firemen uh so it says basically um with the blazes spreading and emergency services battling 50-hour shifts, exploding trees, and choking smoke, it's no wonder the West Coast states are turning 
uh, to unorthodox solutions, any solutions as long as they work. They're so desperate that even local fauna is being called upon to help. In Oregon, firefighters are going to be getting some badly needed aid. Ouch. That was their joke, not mine. Ouch. Um, a herd of 230 goats has arrived in the city of Forest Grove, 25 miles from Portland. Over the next week, they will be eating the dry undergrowth in a 140-acre wood as a wildfire prevention measure. So oh, basically, they're there just to eat the shit so it doesn't burn. That makes sense because it's usually like the brush that makes it so difficult. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe not a bad solution. Yeah. I like that. And I like goats, so. I know. Except for their weird little eyes. I mean, yeah. I just thought that was so cool, though. That, that is they're, cool. they're adding goats to the firefighter force. <laughs> I couldn't think of words. And then it was, you know. Fire goats. Yeah. Fire goats. Well, thanks for that story, Eden. I appreciate it. So, Nicole has a story that she has said is lighthearted. As lighthearted as ghosts can be. Okay. I like lighthearted ghosts. I hope you like this story. It's unique. I think it's the first time we're covering something of this particular nature. Oh, cool. Our stop today is in Columbus Junction, a small city of about 1,900 people in southeastern Iowa. It's the second largest city in Louisa County and is a little over two square miles in area. Columbus Junction was founded in 1870 at the intersection of two rail lines, the east-west running Chicago-Rock Island Pacific Railroad and the north-south running newly completed Burlington, Cedar Rapids, and Minnesota Rail Line. Ooh, fancy. I know, right? Now, since the completion of the Burlington Line was financed by the town and township of Columbus City, the new city at its juncture was named in its honor, so it was called Columbus Junction. Okay. Now, the very first building in Columbus Junction was a boarding house and restaurant built by August Gilbert, who had the house frame shipped by train from Muscatine, Iowa. Named the Gilbert House, the building was about 18 by 24 feet originally, so pretty tiny, and it was a story and a half. But it served to help residents in the new city during its formative years. It kind of became the social hub of this little railway town. Yeah. The biggest burst of growth in Columbus Junction was during the later half of the 20th century when the city became home to a meatpacking plant. Between 1961 and 1982, Rath Packing Company operated a hog processing plant just north of the city. In 1985, IBP purchased the plant, which it ran until 2001 when Tyson Foods purchased the plant. Oh, yeah, apparently the ho- big guns coming yeah, the in. Big guns. Apparently, uh, Iowa is a big hog state. I didn't know. Okay, I didn't know that either. There's something like... F- for every resident, it's like four hogs. Wow. So that's where a lot of our, our pork products come from. Oh, I love St. Pal pork products. <laughs> now, the available jobs at Columbus Junction due to the meat packing plant really drew a lot more residents to the city, including a large number of immigrants from Myanmar. So there's a very large Myanmar population in the city. Oh, okay. So it adds a little bit of diversity. Now, the name Columbus Junction is also very apt to its geography that surrounds the city. The city lies at the confluence of two rivers, the Iowa and the Cedar. The land around the city is pretty sandy and hilly, and there's lots of ravines. These hills and ravines even impact the way that Columbus City streets are laid out. The city has a few square blocks, and throughout the streets, they kind of twist to compensate for this terrain. In fact, there's even a 100-foot-deep ravine between 3rd and 4th Streets in Columbus Junction. 
stretching over the ravine is our stop for the day, the Louisa County Historic Swinging Bridge, also known as Lover's Leap Bridge. Oh, okay. So we've got a bridge going mm-hmm. on. There's been several haunted bridges that I've come across. I have too, and most of them have sort of like very urban legendy yeah. rumors. This one was interesting because there is a little bit more to it. Okay, because a lot of them's like you're basically like woman in white type mm, of deal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I looked at some pictures of the current bridge that stretches this ravine, and it's definitely not for the faint of heart. Oh, God. Huh. It kind of reminded me of that swinging bridge from Indiana Jones, the Temple of no, Doom. No, <laughs> I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. Not the whole thing, but parts of it for sure, except instead of being surrounded by like cliffs, it's surrounded by really leafy green trees. Okay, well, so that's a little better, but a little still, less terrifying, I don't but really still. want a nice swinging rope bridge. Exactly. <laughs> Now, the first bridge that was built across the ravine was kind of quickly assembled in 1880, and it was basically constructed over leftover leftover barrel staves and wire. Okay. Uh, in 18 crafty. Yeah, very crafty. In 1886, the barrel parts were reinforced with regular old wooden slats. Okay, probably a little bit safer. A little bit, a little bit. In 1902, the town finally condemned this first rickety bridge, and. They decided, we still need a bridge here. Let's build a new one. Now, the new bridge is a little bit longer. It was 160 feet across the ravine, and it was designed as a swinging suspension bridge. Uh, Building a swinging bridge allowed for the builders to use less material, but still making a bridge that would stand up against any kind of winds and would stretch more effectively over the ravine. But this bridge also did not age very well. By 1920, it was starting to be a little risky, shall we say. Risky bridgeness. Risky Risky bridgeness. (laughs) It was so risky, in fact, that when two brothers, Lou and Jess Tizer, were crossing the bridge, it gave way. Oh, shit. The teenagers were unfortunately near the middle of the bridge when the slats fell away and they fell through the bridge. My worst freaking nightmare. Right? Oh. Amazingly, though. The boys survived the fall. They fell nearly 80 feet and even landed still standing unharmed. What? Right? How crazy is that? Wow. Yeah. They were super lucky. Did I ever tell you about that girl that fell out the third floor window? No. Yeah, there was this party. And uh, this girl, um, she was sitting in the window in, on the third floor of this house. Mm-hmm. And she had been drinking because it was a party. Yes, of course. Uh, and uh, I think she was flirting with a guy. I can't remember, but I think she was flirting with a guy and did like one of like the hair toss giggles. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, and then she leaned back too far and fell out the fucking window onto the front lawn. Oh, my God. She was fine because she was drank so much that she didn't tense up and she was okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't think the, the Tizer brothers were drinking, but. <laughs> Maybe. You never know. You never know. They were teenagers. Don't pretend to know their life, Nicole. I shouldn't. You're right. Thank you for reminding me. Now. After the these boys fell, they decided, yeah, we should probably condemn this bridge too. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> so in 1924, uh, between 1922 and 1924, they tore the old bridge down and built a new one. Now, this new bridge is the current bridge that still stands there. And it actually is longer than either of the original bridges. It's 262 feet long. And then in 1954, they reinforced the bridge yet again. They basically put up a bunch of steel cables. So instead of being rope across this ravine, it's all steel. Okay. That's so it's much a little, safer. Yeah, it's much safer, less scary. The interesting thing about this bridge is the local legend tied to it and tied to the more popular name of Lover's Leap. Okay. So according to local legend, 
uh, a Native American maiden and her beloved were separated when he headed off to battle. When news reached the maiden that her beloved had died on the battlefield, she ran to the ravine. Heartbroken, she threw herself into it. Some tales say that her body was never recovered, while others say that she was actually buried at the bottom of the ravine by an other scorned lover of hers. Either way, all the tales agree on one thing. The maiden still haunts the bridge and watches over the ravine and those who travel across it. Okay, so this is pretty, you know, normal for bridges. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A lot of people say that she was actually watching over Lou and Jess Tizer when they crossed the bridge, and she actually helped keep them safe when they fell. Wow, that's cool. I like that. Yeah, right? A helpful it's like, ghost helpful is always ghost. a good ghost. Uh, pedestrians on the bridge, and it is only a pedestrian bridge. There's a lot of cute pictures online of people walking their dogs across it and stuff. But people report at night when you cross the bridge between 3rd and 4th Street, you can hear a lot of strange sounds coming from the ravine echoing up. Um, People say that they sound like a woman who's crying or screaming, even moaning. Huh. And it's very eerie because usually folks hear as they cross the center of the ravine, the deepest part. Nope. Right? Like, "Mm -mm, mm -mm, I'm going to take the long way around. Exactly. There's also been reports of strange lights that float across the ravine or in the trees. Uh, You can see them when you're crossing the bridge at night. Some people have said it could be cars. That's what I'm thinking. But the way that the streets are, so it the the initial street you get on at third street it curves away yeah. so it will be cars driving away from you and then fourth street is basically a dead end street it's just a bunch of houses and okay. it opens into a park and where folks say they see these lights it's not in either direction of the streets oh so it's actually like looking down into the ravine or over so Weird. people think they might actually be some kind of spirit light since it's close to the center yeah. section of the bridge But yeah, that is the story of the Lover's Leap Bridge. Um, There was a couple other apocryphal tales about local settlers being involved with like the Native American maiden who may have killed herself. But that was like one person's story about their great, great granddaddy. Yeah. So it was a little like, "Mm, I don't know about that. But yeah. (laughs) um, So yeah, that is uh, our Haunted Bridge for today. That you're not going to catch me on that rickety ass bridge. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm not going. I'll race you. It's it's not even the fact that it's haunted. That part I don't care about. The fact that it is a scary ass bridge is what freaks Does it me for out. you? Yeah. yeah. No. Can't do it. You. I hear you. But that was a cool story. Yeah, I thought it was neat. My sources were Wikipedia, only in your state, iowaadventure.com, Atlas Obscura, columbusjunctioniowa.org, thenextgalaxy.com, and the Des Moines Register. Very nice. I thought so. Well, I hope you enjoyed our show for today, everybody. If you have any feedback or you want to ask us a question or you want to request a specific story. Or just say hi. Yes, we're open to saying hi. Tell us we're awful. (laughs) All those good things. All those bad things. Pull our hair. Pull our hair. (laughs) (laughs) You can do all of that uh, in a multitude of ways. You can send us an email at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media at roadside horror show on facebook and instagram or roadside horror on twitter uh, you can stop by our website which is roadside horror uh, we'd like to thank yox rocks designs and e massey for our logo and intro and outro music respectively and until next time roadsters creep, creep on, on creeping, creeping on, on.